nonlinear optics um, is really just electro-optics. We already looked at electro-optics where you have um, the electro-optic effect was uh, the index of refraction of a material being changed by an applied electric field. Well, nonlinear optics we can think of as the index of refraction of a material being changed not by an externally applied electric field, but by the actual electric field of the wave propagating through it. And if you think about it that way, almost all of the math and the, uh, the descriptions of the crystals is completely analogous. So for example, the electro-optic tensor had certain forms for different crystals. They have exactly the same forms for the nonlinear optic tensors. Um, and we'll see, that. we'll see that today. OK, so uh, that was pretty much empty. I didn't fill that in. To start with, let's look at the physical principles involved. Um, we'll describe some of the sort of terminology that's used in nonlinear optics. And then we'll sort of dive in and look at the Maxwell's equations and the, the mathematics a little more closely. So at the very beginning of the course, when we were talking about propagation in crystals, we described the um, permittivity as looking like this. It's related to some permittivity of free space. And then there was some additional factor that came from the material. We called that the atomic susceptibility. So we introduced it at the time, but then didn't do anything with it. And because the D field that we've been working with is equal to epsilon times the E field, when we multiply this through, this looks like epsilon naught times E plus chi times E. And we had a term for that. Does anybody remember what we called that? Yeah, the material polarization. Good question. Yes and no. Yes, there is one there. And later on, we'll see an expression that looks totally wrong, where there's not an epsilon not there. And yet, my attempt to resolve that conflict, I assumed it was, I was looking at the book, copying uh, equations down to put in the notes. And I noticed that. And I looked up a couple of their references. And I found that um, there's sort of an unconventional way to describe one of the susceptibilities we'll see. Anyhow, uh, just an advertisement of what's to come. Okay, so we call that the material polarization. And you can see from this expression that we've assumed that the polarization is proportional to the driving electric field. So the idea is you have an electric field. This is your oscillating wave. So the field is going up and down. You have a charge that's in a material um, that has some freedom to be displaced from its neighboring uh, charge pair producing a dipole. And so that electric field drives that charge around. You have the dipole of a single individual molecule. When you add up all those molecules in your material, that's what we call the material polarization. OK, so that definition assumed the polarization was linearly dependent on the electric field. The harder you push the charge, the further it gets displaced from its equilibrium position. So 
that's true to a certain point, or at least that's uh, observed to a certain point. But like any sort of equilibrium state, if you disturb it hard enough, you eventually run into some limitation. If you have a mass on a spring and you stretch that spring enough, eventually you reach the elasticity limit. It becomes plastically deformed. You distort the spring. Um, so let's consider just sort of a cartoon sketch of what the polarization would look like as a function of the applied electric field for two, uh, two sort of straw man cases. One where you have a charge bound, say an electron charge bound to a positively charged nucleus. You displace it far enough that you essentially ionize the atom. And now you have a free charge. And your applied electric field is no longer pushing against the, uh, the restoring force. It just accelerates your charge away. So that happens once the electric field becomes strong enough to displace the charge far enough that it essentially is an ion. And at that point, the applied electric field just drives the, uh, the charge infinitely far away, and your polarization blows up to infinity. So clearly, there has to be some point that's nonlinear in that relationship, hence the term nonlinear optics. And likewise, you can imagine a case where maybe your charge is constrained by, say, neighbors that won't allow it to be displaced beyond a certain distance. So as the electric field starts to drive it harder and harder, eventually the displacement of the charge bumps up against some hard limit, and it can't displace any further, and so it rolls over. That's another nonlinearity. The sign of those are opposite. That's a very uh, general picture. It's not. Uh, neither of those extremes are really what is typically going on, but it sort of shows why you might have this nonlinear effect once you drive the electron hard enough. And generally, the field strength necessary to, to reach these uh, nonlinear regions is comparable to the field strength that binds the charges to the to their equilibrium position, so the binding field between an electron and a, and a proton in an atom. Okay, so those are very large fields. That's on the order of the field necessary to ionize the material. So if you're dealing with light that normally doesn't damage your material, you're probably dealing with linear optics. So everything that you would likely do in a lab without trying is going to be linear optics. And generally, in order to see nonlinear effects, you need, to, uh, you need to take special precautions or special efforts to create large enough electric fields to see these effects. And even when you do, they're not nearly as dramatic as what I've shown. So they tend to be relatively small effects and take a lot of careful preparation in order to observe them or, or build useful components from them. OK, so we can talk a little bit about some of the notation I said the polarization, as I've written it here, is linearly dependent on the electric field. But if we allow it to be some arbitrary function, then we can write it as a Taylor series, where there's a component that's linearly proportional on the electric field to the electric field. And there's also a second order component, a third order component, and all the higher order components. And so if we Instead of talking about the polarization, we want to talk about the atomic susceptibility. We can do the same thing. And typically, the polarization, when written in terms of the atomic susceptibility, we write that there's a, we write a 
term chi, which is our normal atomic susceptibility. And then we have what we call chi 2, which represents the second order component of the polarization. Chi 3 is the term responsible for this third order component of the polarization. So we're just factoring out, I guess, a uh, what an epsilon naught. Yeah, an epsilon naught from the polarization and subtracting this uh, this term. Where do we get the coefficients? They're magic. And as far as I can tell you, that's all I can tell you. I don't know why. It says this is sometimes written as. I don't know why. Uh, that's a four offhand. Actually, I could conjure a guess, but I'm not going to. I'll just I'll just leave it for the moment as magic. Um, I think what it's going to be. I guess I'm not leaving it alone, but. <laughs> We'll see, when we write this in tensor notation, this E3 is actually EI, EJ, EK. And so the number of permutations you have, uh, I suspect then when you divide by 6, gives you 4. So that 24, something like 24 permutations. I don't know, that's just off the top of my head. Um, so what's, so there's this form. Um, the form our book uses is different. There's many different forms. Um, the one our book uses is this form here. And for reasons that will make a little bit of sense later, um, this second order term, regardless of what you want to call it, we call it 2D. So D is going to be the nonlinear optic tensor, or the nonlinear optic coefficient, if you're talking about one of the values of that tensor. And the for chi 3 pretty much stays the same, but what you'll notice now is that epsilon naught, which gets multiplied by this 4 chi 3, does not get multiplied by this 4 chi 3. And that's what I was saying. I consulted several references, and I consistently found this notation with no description of why this chi has an epsilon naught and this chi does not. So I don't know. Um, so I'm just going to say, let's go with what the book tells us. So this term right here in our polarization is our normal linear polarization. So we'll call everything else the nonlinear polarization. So these second, third, fourth terms we'll call the nonlinear polarization. And typically what we'll find is that um, for moderate fields, we only have the linear term being significant. As we increase the field, then this second order term can start to be observed. And you need to go to higher and higher fields to observe the higher and higher terms. So we'll start our discussion with the effect of the second order term. That's called three-wave mixing. And then we'll generalize to this term here, which is called four-wave mixing. And so if you want to understand the size of the electric field necessary, the typical value for this d coefficient, the nonlinear coefficient, for materials that are chosen because they have high values of that nonlinear coefficient, um, typically those numerical values are about 10 to the minus 22 coulombs per volt squared. So your electric field needs to be on the order of 10 to the 11 volts per meter in order, in order to have observable effects. Okay, so very large fields. What is the Well, a volt per meter so is a unit of electric field. So if you think about, say, a capacitor that has 
a millimeter spacing and you've got a 9 volt battery across it, something like that, that's going to be whatever, 9,000 volts per meter. So that's, that's on the order of the uh, interatomic fields. So the fields between an electron and its... its uh, and which well, here, let's do this. This is a good practice for anyone who's going to take the qual in the next week or so. Um, calculate the electric field in uh, a Bohr hydrogen atom. So you've got plus Q, minus Q. They're separated by A naught. What's the field? Uh, so the field, let's just uh, use, uh, start with the force is 1 over 4 pi epsilon naught. Uh, Q1, Q2 over R squared, and the field is the force per unit charge. Right, so um, pick a point in the middle, calculate the field from each force. Um, they're identical charges, equidistant away. We're going to get twice the field of a single charge, and it's going to have a magnitude of, uh, we use E as the charge. 4 pi epsilon naught, and we'll use A naught over 2 as our radius. So we get a 4, canceling a 4. Uh, yeah, squared. Okay, so that gives us a 2. I know 1 over 4 pi epsilon is 9 by 10 to the 9. So 1 over 4 pi epsilon is 9 times to the 9? Okay, that's useful. And we have to multiply by, let's we'll call it 10 to the minus 19 uh, coulombs. And A naught is like 10 to the minus uh, 11, 10 to the minus 10. It's, an, it's about an angstrom, 10 to the minus 10. I think it's about half an angstrom. So uh, let's call it, just call it 10 to the minus 10 to make it easy. So that's 10 to the minus 20, 10 to the 20 in the numerator cancels out with a factor of 1, 10 to the 10, maybe 10 to the 11. We count for those numerical values. Ah, right, so, so basically the physical model we had said you need a field that's strong enough to ionize the atom in order to see these nonlinear effects, and this just verifies that. Okay, so how do we write this if we want to be careful and do uh, actual calculations with it. These are all tensors, or at least the polarization is a vector. The electric field is a vector. So the quantities that relate them are tensors. And when we have electric field squared, we can really like write that as um, EJEK times DIJK. And what that will give us is um, when we sum over the J and Ks, that will give us a vector. So we have. An electric field, we consider um, all the possible polarization components of the electric field. Let's say the x component of the electric field, so j equals k equals 1. Then the dijk tensor is a nonlinear tensor, and it will tell us how an electric field polarized along x affects the material polarization along x, y, and z for i equals 1, 2, 3. Likewise, for J equals K equals 2, if you have an electric field along Y, then it would be the DI22 
terms that would tell us about the polarization of each direction. And if you have components of the electric field along x and some along y, and you have mixing so that uh, the x component can affect the polarization along y and the y component can affect along x, then you'll have uh, yeah, the j not equal to k terms. Um, As we go to higher and higher orders, we have more and more instances of the electric field that we're considering. And so our tensors, every time we go to a higher order, our tensors increase by one dimension. What happens when we go to like fourth dimension? What does that mean? We only have EX, EY, EZ. So what would fourth be? The next two. The next one? Yeah. Physically. Physically? Well, it's just saying that if you have a, a factor that scales as the electric field to the fourth power, that you can no not necessarily uh, oh so you, oh yeah you could never have those three values being different right, right. that's true yes it's possible in this expression for these to be physically different values um, okay so um, we can make a couple blanket statements about this uh, nonlinear tensor. Like we had for the electro-optic tensor, there are certain symmetry properties that it should, be, should uh, obey. So one is that if you have a centrosymmetric crystal such that you can invert your coordinate system or rotate your or invert your crystal lattice points and reproduce the same crystal, then all of its crystal properties should be symmetric under inversion. And at the same time, the physical motivation for the second term, the second term is a uh, parabolic term. So it should be symmetric around 0, not anti-symmetric. So if it needs to be symmetric around 0 and have inversion symmetry, the only way it can do that is if it equals 0. Right, so, yeah. so if you have some quantity, just some general quantity, um, function f, and you require f of x equals to uh, minus f of x, that's what happens when you in invert the coordinate system. But you require that it reproduce itself. So if you have inversion symmetry, you expect that when you invert the coordinates, you reproduce the same values. Uh, that's this. But at the same time, you expect that by turning the crystal around, you change the direction of all the, the relative direction of all the electric fields. You should change the direction of the, the polarization that results, meaning you should change the sign of the function. So I guess that's, that's this. So in order for those to both be satisfied. Yeah, so that's, that's the same argument we made. Perhaps I made it more clearly with the RIJK electro-optic tensor. And now we see the same argument uh, gives us the same result for the DIJK tensor. And in fact, all of the symmetry arguments 
uh, give us the same symmetry uh, considerations. Okay, so looking at this electro-optic tensor, Dijk, um, if it's not zero, well, let me say, if it is zero, that's a material where you might start to see the third order nonlinearity. If it's not zero, the second order nonlinearity would generally be larger than the third, third order. You generally wouldn't observe the third order. It would be masked by any effects from the second order nonlinearity. Okay, so if we write out this expression for the polarization in terms of the electric fields, and we write these electric fields um, not as just phasors, but actual real functions. And the reason we do that is you can't multiply two phasors. Um, or multiplying two phasors is not equivalent to multiplying their functions. I think I showed that when we introduced phasors, but um, I'm not going to go back and prove that again. But I'll just say we write these out in terms of the actual function they represent. So here is phasor J right here, and here is its complex conjugate. When you add those together, you always get a real part, because imaginary parts are opposite. And we take the average value between the real parts of both of those to get the real part of what this phasor represents. Likewise for EK, we do the same thing. And we can now expand. We can do the multiplication explicitly. We have four, four terms here. So we have EJ times EK. And when we do that, we also have an, a phase of omega JT and omega KT. So that is this term here. When we have this term times this term, so EJ times EK star, that's here, we have a phase of omega JT and a phase of minus omega KT. So the phase on that term is omega j minus omega k. And likewise, um, these two terms give me negative the sum of these uh, arguments. And these two terms give me a minus omega j minus omega k. So that minus and that minus cancel. I have a minus omega j and a plus omega k. When you multiply, so each of these fields is a sinusoidal function. When you multiply two sinusoidal functions, you get different. Uh, right, but, but, I mean, those two functions shouldn't they be of the same frequency? Because the same waves coming in. Well, I haven't said explicitly that they're the same wave. So let's treat it as if we've got two different waves, and we can always say, okay, let let the frequencies be identical. And so this, this result is really interesting because what it is, is it's an expression for a polarization. And it's only the contribution of the polarization from the nonlinear term. Right? So there's still the original linear polarization. Now, if we look at this nonlinear term, it's got a component at the difference frequency. And it's got a component at the sum frequencies. And in fact, if you combine this and this, you're going to get uh, cosine omega j minus omega k t. If you combine this and this, you get cosine omega j plus omega k t. Um, so our, 
electric dipoles that are oscillating have a component that's oscillating at different frequencies than we're driving them with. And that's, that's a general result of a nonlinear transfer function. In fact, that's technically how a system is defined as being nonlinear. So if an input, single frequency input, produces outputs at other frequencies, it's considered nonlinear. And so, for example, the polarization at the sum frequency, that's these terms over here, is uh, 1 half dijk times this plus this. And so the 1 half and the fact that I've got two terms cancel and I have polarization at the sum frequency that's proportional to the amplitude of the two field amplitudes that I'm driving this with and the electro-optic coefficient. So in a material, we say that uh, the material responds to a driving electric field by producing oscillating dipoles. Those little oscillating dipoles are like antennas that re-radiate the energy and produce the, the refracted wave that propagates through the material. Okay, so if the, those oscillating dipoles have a component to their motion that's at this different frequency, they will emit a wave that's at a different frequency, and you get light coming out that's a different frequency than what you put in. Substantially different frequency. Can you go over that? I don't know how we got P. The last line. P? Yeah. How did we get that? Um, this was an expression for the polarization as a function of time. Right? So it was a um, it was the functional form of the polarization. And this is the phasor form. So I'm just going from P of T is 1 half. And I'll just focus on these last two terms here, because that's what I care about. I have Ej, Ek, E to the i, omega j plus omega k, T. And then with the complex conjugate of both amplitudes, And this is just a complex conjugate of the whole thing. Oh, and I just that the yeah. So the phasor is the real part. This times this. When you have two exponentials multiplying, you sum their arguments. Okay, so um, before we go any further, we can look a little bit more at this uh, electro-optic tensor. We can write it in contracted notation. Again, we have a 3 by 3 by 3 tensor, so it's difficult to keep track of and to write uh, in matrix form. So we contract it using our usual contraction rules, where we write our electric field, our E squared, as a 1 by 6 matrix. So our first term is going to be EX times EX. Our second term is EY times EY. Our third term is EZ times EZ. And then our fourth, fifth, and sixth terms represent the uh, ZY, I guess, ZX, XY couplings. 
then our electro-optic tensor can be written as a 3 by 6. And this is exactly what we did with the, I said electro-optic, the nonlinear optic tensor uh, can be expressed exactly the same way that the electro-optic tensor was expressed. And in fact, we can relate the two um, directly through this relationship. Okay, so they're closely related and have the same form. If rijk is zero, dijk will be zero. Okay, so stepping back a little bit from the map and again looking at the picture of what's going on, if we consider just the parabolic term to our polarization as a function of applied electric field, then that term, when driven by an oscillating electric field at some frequency omega, will produce a polarization that as the electric field goes through half of a cycle, the polarization goes to a max and back to a min, and as the electric field goes to the negative half cycle, it again goes to a max and back to a min. And this is the standard way you get frequency conversion from 1 omega to 2 omega. Okay, so there's lots of examples of that. There's examples in mechanics. Right, you can see this. If I swing the telephone, right, it's a pendulum. It has a certain frequency at which it's swinging back and forth. Um, if I want to excite that motion, I need to push it at the resonant frequency. Right? I can also excite it by moving my hand up and down. But I have to move my hand up and down at twice the frequency to excite that motion. Because this is going up twice per period and down twice per period. And that's, that's what's going on there. And it's kind of fun to play around with if you ever get a chance. You always have the chance. You always have the chance to play. Play, explore this. Um, it's kind of fun when you shake something at one frequency, you get a response at another. Um, and it, it occurs because there's a nonlinearity. OK, so um, if we look at this polarization that's produced by this driving electric field, we see that it's at twice the frequency. Um, we also can see that it's been shifted, or it's, it's got a net DC value. It's got a, uh, an offset from zero. It's not oscillating around zero um, because in this example the polarization was never negative. The linear polarization is positive on one half, negative on the other half, but the second order term doesn't change sign. And so there's a net offset. And so we can think of this as a DC term plus some second harmonic. From, no, it's from the nonlinear effect. Yeah, and if we go back, we can understand that from our math. If we let omega j equal to omega k, meaning the two electric fields we're considering are, say, from the same laser, so it's just, uh, it's just really a single electric field, but we're considering it twice, then these terms, omega j minus omega k, zero, zero. Those phase amplitudes go away, and this is just a static DC offset. So what is it called when you have, well, what is a DC value to the polarization? What is physically is that?
technical? A steady component. A steady component, yep, that's what it is. So, let's say you've got a crystal, a nonlinear crystal. You shine light through it. One of the interesting things that you can observe is you can put an electrode on the top, an electrode on the bottom, and you can hook this up to a voltage meter. What would you see? You'd see some net voltage in the presence of your wave propagating through. Because that wave propagating through, one of the things it will do is produce this DC polarization, which just means if you had charges in here initially that were balanced in the presence of this, uh, this effect, they get shifted to produce dipoles. Right, so you have a net charge difference across this, this gap. And so you're going to attract positive charges to this plate, right, if this is just like a capacitor, negative charges to that plate, and you'll measure a voltage. It's called optical rectification. So an optical wave can produce a DC electric field. So this is used, for example, um, to, produce, to produce terahertz fields for spectroscopy. There's a lot of spectroscopy in the far infrared where there's not good laser sources available. So one way of generating terahertz fields corresponds to something like a millimeter wavelength is send pulses, send a pulsed laser through a crystal, nonlinear crystal, and every time the pulse goes through, you drive a net DC field across the crystal, and then when the pulse is gone, that field goes away. And if you have a, you know, a pulse every picosecond, that's going to be an oscillating. Your your DC field is actually not DC, but it's oscillating at the uh, repetition rate, and you can then capture that radiated emission and use it as a uh, very long wavelength source for spectroscopy. Or you can control the frequency by just controlling the, uh, the uh, repetition rate of your driving laser. But we're going to focus mostly on the second harmonic, because that's actually an optical wave. There's lots of ways of generating DC waves. The optical waves are, are kind of interesting. Um, couple comments, we'll, we'll derive this later, but the efficiency of conversion from our initial driving electric field to our, um, our wave, let's say this is a, yeah, the, the two components of the electric field are the same frequency, then we have the difference frequency is zero, the sum frequency is twice that, we call it second harmonic generation. So the amplitude of the second harmonic uh, or actually the intensity of the second harmonic field, I to omega, is related to the intensity of the driving field. And that relationship scales as L squared, the length of your crystal, the length of your interaction, divided by the area. Okay, so tightly focused spots convert more efficiently. 
That makes sense, because if the spots are more tightly focused, you get greater intensity. Greater intensity gets you closer to that nonlinear regime. Times the power. So this is the power that you put in in your incident, incident wave. So this is an efficiency that depends on the power. So if you wanted to express the efficiency of a given device that's designed to take laser light and convert it into, num into a second harmonic generation, to second harmonic frequency, the device would have some length and some area. The efficiency depends not only on that, but on how much power you put in. So typically, the device would have its efficiency quoted per watt of input power. So you get these really funky units of efficiencies of 2.5% per watt, which would seem to suggest you know, that you put in more than 40 watts, and you're going to get more than 100% out. Of course, that's not true. It saturates. The efficiency saturates. So this is the unsaturated conversion efficiency. Um, and I, I mention that now just to explain the, the units that you see. So if you look up from New Focus or Thor Labs or some company that makes second harmonic generators, they'll have these strange units. Okay, so if the interaction length should be long, the spot size should be small, you can look at a couple different geometries you might, you might think to uh, start with to get efficient conversion of a wave to second harmonic. Um, you could try to go for minimum spot size, so focus the light very tightly down to a spot. Um, and if you focus it tightly down, that means it's spreading out very rapidly as well. And so in order to keep your spot size small, you'd have to make your crystal thin. So that provides a, a hit in the conversion efficiency because the efficiency scales as L squared. So you can make L longer. And in the process of doing so, you're eventually going to clip the, uh, the beam spot on your edges. So that constrains you to uh, limit how tightly you focus the beam in order to have it basically collimated going through a long crystal. So that's going to run into some geometrical limitations as well. And the way to avoid all of those is to put the whole thing inside of a waveguide where the light's not spreading out. You can focus it to a small spot. You generally have, for single mode waveguides, uh, waveguide dimensions that are comparable to the wavelength. So this spot size can be very small. And the interaction length can be arbitrarily long, or at least limited only by the length of your waveguide, since you don't have diffraction and light spreading out. Um, we'll see some other advantages of the waveguide in a little bit. So here's a couple pictures of how you might implement this. Um, you have a laser. You shine it through the crystal. And your initial, we call it the fundamental frequency, produces some light at the second harmonic frequency, at twice the frequency. And most likely, you'd still have light at the original frequency. You generally don't get 100% conversion efficiency. At least you don't unless you take great pains to arrange it. You could embed this, uh, this material into a fiber or a waveguide. And you could also enclose it inside of a laser cavity so that you increase the, the circulating power and get better efficiency. That's what's meant to be shown there. Uh, in the case where would we get interference with the omega and two omega? You do. And that's the subject of uh, 
a lot of work that goes on in realizing these nonlinear conversions, you need to do what's called phase matching. And that is ensuring that the interference that you get is the proper phase necessary to generate sort of constructive output. So we'll talk quite a bit about that shortly. Okay, so in general, this process is called three-wave mixing. And it comes from the fact that you have, um, you start with two waves, E1 and E2. And when those combine in the nonlinear polarization, they produce a polarization that's oscillating at a third frequency. And that's the source of a third wave. Now, these, I say two waves, those may be actually representations of the same wave. But in general, they can come from two different lasers or two different, uh, two different waves. But you said, you said it, it looks like the polarization of the two frequencies are different in some. That's right. So if these frequencies aren't identical, the difference is omega 1 minus omega 2, and the sum is omega 1 plus omega 2. And so in general, these two waves will give you two new outputs. The one at the lower frequency, uh, we don't always treat as an optical wave. So I mean, when we say three waves, what we mean is two inputs and one optical output. And that's the plus. And the minus, since it's at a lower frequency, uh, may not be an optical output. It turns out it may be. So depending on how these frequencies are arranged, omega 1 minus omega 2 may still be at optical frequencies. But we use the term three-wave mixing. Right, so we call it optical rectification when the difference frequency was zero. And we call it second harmonic generation when the sum frequency is two omega. Otherwise, we just call these sum and difference frequency generation. There we go. OK, so there's three conditions that need to be met in order to have this conversion occur efficiently. Um, well, first you have to have a nonlinear crystal so that your, your nonlinear optic tensor coefficients are not 0. But beyond that, you need to have energy conserved, momentum conserved, and photon flux conserved. And so conservation of energy, which we would expect uh, to be a requirement, means that the energy of the two, if we look at the quantum picture of what's going on, we have a photon from our two incident waves, each combine to produce one photon of our output sum frequency wave. So these each have some energy associated with them, h bar omega. So let those energies be h bar omega 1, h bar omega 2. When they combine, the total available energy is h bar omega 3. And so we'd expect a photon to be at omega 3. Um, and if you've taken laser spectroscopy with me, these types of diagrams may look familiar. These are energy level diagrams in a material. And we can say that there's, um, if you had a laser, for instance, you would say that you're pumping the ground state up to some excited state. And generally, the material can stay at that excited state for some period of time before it decays and gives off a photon. Um, in these nonlinear crystals, the excited state that we'd be pumping to generally doesn't exist. So you, you can only pump to this energy level if the time that you stay there is 0, just from the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. If the time at which you stay there is 0, your uncertainty and energy is infinite. 
and you can pump to any energy level, whether it exists in the system or not. And what that means is you need these two photons to literally be sort of absorbed simultaneously, which reduces the chance of having this. It's a, it's a two-body problem. Um, that's one way of arguing why the conversion efficiencies are so low, why this is such a small effect. Okay, so anyways, if we require the energy to be conserved, h bar omega 1 plus h bar omega 2 equals h bar omega 3, drop the h bars, and we say conservation of energy means the sum of the input frequencies has to equal the output frequency. So we're neglecting that right now and not considering that an optical wave, so it has negligible energy. But in practice, it would be h bar omega 3 plus h bar omega 4. We'd have a, a fourth photon so to consider. Omega, oh, so omega 1 minus omega 2 would equal omega 3 plus omega 4? Uh, let's see, we would say that the energy of the input photons equals the energy of the output photons h bar omega 1 plus h bar omega 2 equals h bar omega 3 plus h bar omega 4. That's the general constraint. Right, and we're going to treat the case where this is negligible. Okay, so we need conservation of energy. We also need conservation of momentum. Photons have momentum. Uh, the momentum is in the direction of their propagation, and its magnitude is h bar k. So just like energy is h bar omega, momentum is h bar k. k is a vector, and momentum has a vector direction. So we expect that the total momentum of our incident photons has to equal the momentum of the output photon. We can express that then as k1 plus k2 equals k3. That's a vector relationship. And we call that the phase matching condition. And we'll explore that uh, quite a bit a little bit later. But when we say phase matching, really what that means is conservation of momentum. And finally, we need conservation of photon flux. So every time one photon uh, gets taken out of beam 1 due to this interaction, it must produce a photon in beam 3. And likewise, every time a photon of beam 1 gets absorbed, you also need one of beam 2 being absorbed to emit a photon of beam 3. And so you can write the change in flux in beam 1 equals a change in flux in beam 2 equals minus a change in flux in beam 3. And these, are, these, are, these fluxes are a number of photons per unit area. So recognizing that the irradiance is equal to the energy per photon times the number of photons, that's an energy. Um, per unit area, so if the flux is number per unit area, then the irradiance is h bar omega phi. We can relate this conservation of flux into some measurable quantities and say that the flux is proportional to i over omega. And so the change, and I wrote it as the change as you propagate along the crystal, direction dz, but it could be in any direction the change, and i1 over omega1 is the same as i2 over omega2 minus I3 over omega 3. Okay, so three conservation laws. And we'll come back to the 
really conservation momentum uh, and phase matching in a bit. But first I want to go through all the different geometries in which you can have this three-wave mixing and what we call the devices that do this. And they're all the same fundamental interaction going on, but we just give them different names. In general, if we have two frequencies coming in and we allow them to interact and produce a third frequency going out, we call that frequency conversion. So an optical frequency converter might be one that has this nonlinear crystal, a filter that blocks the input frequencies and only produces the output frequency. Um, you see it labeled as pump and signal on this uh, diagram. Why, why might they make some sort of differentiation between those? Or to ask it another way, why might you want an optical frequency converter? What's that? So if you, had, if you wanted to um, use a light source that was at a frequency where you didn't have a laser available, lasers tend to operate at discrete frequencies that are governed by the material, materials that laze. Um, so if you needed coherent radiation of high intensity at a wavelength where there's no laser available, you could take a laser at one frequency and combine it with a laser at another frequency and generate the sum or difference. And that's done in uh, green laser pointers. Or pretty much most, many green lasers operate at 532 nanometers. And 532 nanometers is twice the frequency of 1064 nanometers, which is the wavelength of neodymium YAG. So if you need a green laser pointer, and uh, your options are an argon ion laser, which tends to be this big and water cooled, but you need it to fit inside of a pencil like device. You can use a neodymium YAG laser, which is solid state and very small, and then frequency double it. So that's one example. Another reason you might do this is if you have something you're trying to detect um, at a wavelength where you don't have a detector available or a good detector available. So for example, in the mid-IR, if you want to do spectroscopy, the choice of detectors is very limited, and the best detectors give you an efficiency of something like 15 20%. In the visible, you can get almost 100% quantum efficiency. So you could have your infrared signal coming in here as a signal, maybe a neodymium YAG laser, just in the near infrared as your pump. Your signal can be very low power, and you can turn up your pump very hard to induce the nonlinearity, and then you get the mixing and the amount of signal coming out is proportional to the amount of signal going in, but it's at a different frequency. And as a result, you may be able to detect it more efficiently, even considering conversion losses in the crystal. Okay, and so this is done. Um, this is done to utilize silicon detectors uh, for infrared measurements. Okay, uh, another term, optical parametric amplifier. This diagram looks very similar. We have two signals going in. Notice they're now labeled as omega-1 and omega-3. And omega-3 is always going to be the highest frequency wave. Omega-1 is always going to be the lowest frequency wave. And so when these mix, we get, um, we get the pump power at omega-3. Essentially, the process goes in reverse. 
where we get the energy in a single photon at omega-3 getting split into two photons at omega-1 and omega-2, two lower energy photons. And the presence of this signal at omega-1 um, enhances that, that process. And so you can, depending on the, the relative phase of these signals, you can either amplify omega-1 or decrease it and in the process build up a, a frequency at omega-2. So that's called an optical parametric amplifier. It's very much like a laser amplifier. You have some signal coming in. That signal gets amplified. There's some pump that provides the energy to do that. I mentioned, though, a laser amplifier can actually store the energy and then in the material and release it. And this doesn't do that. It just sloshes it over from the pump and puts it into the other frequency that you're amplifying. So the crystal is not acting like gain, right? It's not a gain medium. No, it's not. Okay, so if you can build an amplifier, if you give this feedback, you can build an oscillator. If you hear the term laser, this is probably what you think of. It's a laser oscillator. Um, it's, an, it's a gain medium in between two mirrors. In this case, like we said, this isn't really a gain medium, but it amplifies a signal passing back and forth. And if your signal resonates, you can enhance the effect. And you can even start without any signal. So just start with a, a pump that you drive this with. There's an infinite number of frequency combinations that can be produced from a given pump. Right? Pick omega-1 less than omega-3. You can find an omega-2 that satisfies conservation of energy. But the frequencies that are resonant in this cavity will build up, and those frequencies you can extract a useful amount of power in. And this behaves a lot like a laser, with one huge advantage, is that you can tune this frequency to be essentially anything between 0 and omega-3 just by tuning the resonant condition of that cavity. Whereas a laser may be tunable over a few nanometers, um, if it's a highly tunable laser, um, this is tunable basically indefinitely. So this is used to generate frequencies, uh, particularly in the mid-infrared, mid-infrared and far-infrared. Um, this is a very common source of coherent radiation. One problem, though. We started off with mixing two frequencies. Yeah. I figure it was a sum and difference. Yeah. But now we just take one frequency and get two frequencies on the So, time reversal symmetry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> so we haven't... We're going to dive into the math a lot more uh, later. But first, I just want to introduce all the different effects, the terms for all the different three-wave interactions we can have. OK, so in order for any of these interactions to be efficient, in order to produce a, a usable amount of uh, power in our frequency-converted waves, we need to have conservation of momentum. Um, so conservation of momentum says, Let's say for collinear beams, so we don't need to keep track of the vector notation. K1 plus K2 equals K3. So remember, K1 and K2 are my lower frequency waves. K3 is my higher frequency wave. So K1 and K2 are lower momentum than K3. So they sum up to be K3. And if you write K as 
n k naught or n omega over c, we could write this as n1 omega 1 over c1, that's k1. k2 is n2 omega 2 over c. k3 is n3 omega 3 over c, and the over c's I'll cancel. So we can write conservation of momentum as n1 omega 1 plus n2 omega 2 equals n3 omega 3. And you might be tempted to say, well, OK, uh, they're all in the same material, so the indices cancel. And this gives me omega 1 plus omega 2 equals omega 3, which is conservation of energy. So this isn't really an additional constraint. What's wrong with that argument? So we do have to consider the vector direction. But we can say, what happens when we have collinear beams? So we can, we can choose to focus on a, a more specific circumstance. You can just read the rest of the slides. What's wrong with it? Dispersion. Dispersion means different frequencies. Will, materials won't have the same weight uh, indices of refraction. Um, okay. N is a function of lambda. N is a function of lambda. And we typically don't have to consider that very much if you just have a laser. If we have a laser or even sidebands on a laser put on by an acousto-optic modulator or an electro-optic modulator, the range of wavelengths you have is essentially zero. I mean, you essentially have uh, your frequency spectrum as a delta function. Now, we have frequencies that are separated by a great deal, by, you know, by 100%. And so we're generally not going to have n1 equal to omega, n2 equal to n3. Okay, so if you have conservation of energy, the only way to have conservation of momentum as well in a collinear interaction is somehow for n1 to equal n2 to equal n3, or at least for the average of n1 and n2 to equal n3. Right? Because, yeah. And that's now what we call phase matching. So phase matching starts as conservation of momentum, and it ends up being a problem of trying to find a way to make the indices of refraction equivalent at all the different wavelengths you're using. Okay, so if we want to understand how the index of refraction changes as a function of wavelength, um, we can go through the classical electron oscillator model and derive uh, a functional form, or we can look in a data table and find empirical fits to measure data, and that's typically what's done. And the f there's lots of different forms that you will see that, that use to fit the data. The first form was uh, an expression that looked like this that was credited to Cauchy in like uh, 1850 or so. 30 years later, Selmayr improved upon it with a form that looked like this. Uh, this is an improvement. It, an, unlike this, this will model accurately what goes on uh, near atomic resonances. So atomic resonances are wavelengths where this denominator goes to zero. The index of refraction blows up. Um, in any event, you can look up the coefficients for the Selmayr equation. Um, they're available. Some of them are available, I think, in chapter five of our textbook. Yurivinye has a table. I usually just Google a manufacturer of a crystal and look at their spec sheet, and they'll tell me this. Um, so they'll tell you the values of the coefficients, and they'll also tell you the form of the Selmayr equation, because it seems every crystal is measured using a slightly different form. Some don't have this lambda squared in the top. Some have it only on one term, not on the other. Um, so you always have to 
look at the coefficients, look at the form that you plug them into. But in general, it's some form that looks something like this. And you can just uh, plug in values of wavelength. If they don't explicitly tell you the units on these coefficients, then you should assume that the wavelength that you plug in should be evaluated in microns. That's, that's sort of the standard uh, way to define the coefficients. Okay, so C1 and C2 would have units of microns squared. A, B1, and B2 would be unitless. Okay, so here's an example. Uh, look up the uh, properties of beta barium borate, which is a common nonlinear crystal called BBO. And Christech is a company that manufactures this, and they quote these values for the index of refraction. They give you the values at some common wavelengths that you might be using. So I mentioned 532 is a green light source that comes from 1064 nanometer wave being frequency doubled. So they'll explicitly tell you what these equations evaluate to. Um, but if you have to use uh, wavelengths at other other values, you have to plug them into this, this function and evaluate them. And notice this form. So this term is the DC term. This term here lacks a lambda squared in the numerator, like I had on the last slide. And this one lacks anything in the denominator. So the form is very different, but the, the idea is the same. Also note that it's telling you not the index of a fraction, but the index squared. So you have to take the square root to get the index. And it's, this is a uniaxial crystal, so it has a different value for n0 and a different value for n e. I can plot those. Here they are plotted. Um, you'll notice as I go into the UV, the index is blowing up. That's because lambda squared is getting close to 0.01. And so it'd be 100 nanometers would be where lambda squared equals 0.01. And physically, what's happening is at 100 nanometers, you have ultraviolet photons with a lot of energy. They can excite an electronic transition from like an s orbital to a p orbital. The next resonance is somewhere over here in the infrared. And if you're working in between the resonances, the index always decreases as wavelength increases. That's called normal dispersion. Only when you're sort of in the middle of an atomic resonance is do you see anomalous dispersion where the, the change is the other, the other way? OK, so what can we say? If we want, um, say, to have a beam of 1064 nanometer light converted to 532 nanometer light, we need to phase match to conserve momentum. And that means we need the index at 1064 to equal the index at 532. So evaluate at 532. And at 1064, and what you see is if they're both, say, um, ordinary polarization, those indices don't match. If they're both entirely extraordinary, they don't match. But you can tune the angle of the crystal such that the index of refraction seen is somewhere between n naught and n e. Right? We had an expression where the extraordinary index of refraction is a fun function of angle that looked like this, where theta was the uh, angle of propagation relative to the optical axis, the uniaxial crystal. So you can 
tune the angle and adjust the extraordinary index of refraction anywhere between these two curves. So what you could do is uh, adjust, say, the, you could pick a value for the, um, say, ordinary index at 1064. So you send your light in at 1064 with that polarization state. You could try to get your output polarization to be extraordinary polarization. And if you adjust the crystal angle such that at 532, you're somewhere between these two curves. If you adjust so that you're right here, the same value, then you can have phase matching. Of course, it means that your electric field is polarized in one direction, and it's producing material polarization in the orthogonal direction. So you need some off-diagonal element in the electro-optic tensor to produce that. But if your material has off-diagonal elements, you can exploit that to do what we call phase matching. Adjusting the angle of propagation, or the angle of the crystal, in order to match the uh, indices of refraction. Okay, the geometry of how you do that determines the name we apply to the phase matching. There's two different terms for the phase matching that you'll hear commonly, type 1 and type 2. If you explore a little more, you find out there's actually eight different types. But for reasons that will be clear in a second, the only two that we ever hear about are type 1 and type 2. Okay, so here is the, uh, here's a table that describes how we define different types of phase matching. If you have three waves, two input waves and one output wave, although it doesn't, in the case of an optical parametric amplifier, this could be your input and these could be your two outputs. But you have omega-1 less than or equal to omega-2 less than omega-3. Okay, for second harmonic generation, omega-1 equals omega-2. Omega-3 is twice that. If your two lower frequency components are both ordinary polarization, that's what we just had in the example, and your sum frequency is extraordinary polarization, we call that geometry type 1 phase matching. It's important to go through this table because when you actually go to buy a crystal from a manufacturer, they'll say, Type 2 phase matching is possible at 32.7 degrees. Type 1 phase matching is possible at 26.8 degrees if you heat the crystal to 300 degrees Kelvin. Or I guess 300 Kelvin isn't so difficult. 300 Celsius. Um, they like to talk about what type of phase matching you're going to use. And if you're going to talk to a crystal vendor, you need to know what that means. Um, if you have either your incident field polarized at an angle where there's some extraordinary component and some ordinary component, or you explicitly have two different waves of different polarization components, then it's the average of the index of refraction that they see that has to equal that of uh, omega-3. And if their opposite polarization state with omega-1 being E, omega-2 being O, and omega-3 being E, we call that type 2. And basically, for every permutation possible of the two different polarization states of the three waves, we have a different type. Okay, so you'll notice one thing right away. If you have second harmonic generation where omega 1 equals omega 2, then it doesn't matter whether you have omega 1 being E and omega 2 being O, or vice versa. Those are degenerate cases. So, omega, so type 2 and type 3 are basically the same, or they are the same in second harmonic generation. They're only 
differentiable when you have uh, different frequencies as your input. Type 4 and type 5 are never used for phase matching. They represent all the polarization states being the same. And if we go back to our picture, where we're trying to choose an angle such that we can tune the polarization or the index of refraction between these two points, if all the if you have three different frequencies and you're tuning them all at the same time, you're not uh, you're not able to uh, you don't have a free parameter to control the relative phase matching. And if they're all ordinary polarization, then you can't tune at all. There's not there's no effect by t tuning the angle. So type 4 and type 5 are never used for phase matching crystals. And then type 6, 7, and 8 are identical to type 1, 2, and 3. Just flip this chart up, except that the output is ordinary polarization instead of extraordinary. And so most people don't really care about that differentiation. They say you've either got your input states being the same polarization or your input states being opposite. If they're the same, they call it type 1. If they're opposite, they call it type 2. Regardless of whether it's actually type 2 or type 3, or type 6 or type 7, all of that gets termed type 2. And this type 8, which is EE combining to give an O, people will call type 1. Because like type 1, you have two input states that are the same polarization, producing an orthogonal output polarization. Okay, So you kind of have to know what people mean or what a reference means when it states the type of phase matching, whether it uh, is being explicit in defining all eight types, or whether it's being general and just differentiating between type 1 and type 2. But, but for type 1, we assume that the n is the same for both of them, omega 1 and omega 2. Well, not necessarily. If these are different frequencies, they wouldn't be the same. But the only, the only thing we have to change is the extraordinary. Yes, so this can be tuned between two extreme values by changing the angle of the crystal, and that changing the angle doesn't affect the value of the index for either of these waves. So but I wanted to make it true on the left side of the equation, or make it free on the right side. Yeah. So that's what we want N1 to equal N2. We want the average value of N1 and N2 equaling omega N3. So we want this. Okay, and let me it at first glance it may look like you want n1 plus n2 to equal n3, but if you say omega 3, well let's just take second harmonic generation where omega 3 equals 2 omega 1 and omega 2 equals omega 1, then this gives me n1 omega 1 plus so n2 and n1 are the same. n1 omega 1. Well, let me go ahead and call that n2. The frequencies are the same. The indices may be different if I have type 2 phase matching, where I have two different polarization states being represented. Equals n3. Now for omega 3, I'm going to call that 2 omega 1. So your omegas cancel. You divide by 2. You have your average index of the input photons has to equal the index of the output photon. Okay. So we get two, two of the indices to equal the third one. Yes. Okay. And depending on the type of phase matching, when you tune the angle, you may be adjusting actually 
a term on the left and a term on the right. Um, but as long as they're adjusting at different rates, it may be possible. And that's type two, right? That's type, uh, well, yes, type two phase matching has two different fields that are going to be tuned. Um, so the next class, we're just going to basically draw tons of diagrams, um, see how to explicitly calculate phase matching angles. Um, so a quick preview. It's going to look like this. We're going to use our normal shells again. Um, so that's what you have to look forward to. That's what you need to do the homework. So I'm not going to make the homework due on Monday. I will post the homework tonight. Uh, I expect then, do you guys want it to be due next, the following Wednesday? Or do you want it to be due a week and a half? Following I Monday. No, this is actually the, l th I'm not worried about getting too far behind in the homework. So I think we'll do it a week and a half. Okay. <laughs> I'll just give you the option. <laughs>